Hello and welcome to Play to Find Out, the Dungeon World podcast from the Dungeon World Discord. It's me, Arthur, or Art Projects on the forum. And also me, Eamon, or Voidlight on the forum. How's it Tim- going, Eamon? Pretty good. I'm I'm a little skeeved out by the, the sketchiness of this place because we're in one of the most deadly and hard to reach uh, eateries and uh, bars in the galaxy, which is the Silvered Knife on the south side of Kamarag, which is the, of course, the hidden city in the webway of the Dark Eldar. Yes, this is uh, this is not quite the five star bistro I was hoping it would be. And what what's that guy over there with the weird eyes? Oh, that's a slith. Yeah, they're they're snake people prized for their uh, their loyalty as bodyguards. So yeah, don't don't look at him too closely. Oh no, I looked at him. Amen. I looked at him. Oh, uh, this is gonna be just like in Star Wars. The whole my friend doesn't like you either. Like that whole business. Oh man, I like people. I like people a lot, and it's good that I like people a lot because today we're going to be talking about people a lot, specifically non-player people. But before we do that. Eamon, I understand you have a highlight to share. Oh, absolutely. So there I was, uh, in the middle of summer, trying to get a couple friends together for a one-shot, or maybe a short, you know, short few-session campaign if my, uh, if everything went well. And I got everyone together, I had four players, and I posed the question to them if they wanted to do a, a session of sort of an industrial fantasy, sort of science fantasy, type of game in using into the odd if they wanted to do like a dark version of like Grimm's fairy tale type fantasy in troika or if they wanted to to do a sort of dishonored uh magical steampunk haunted city fantasy in uh in blades in the dark and everyone wanted to do blades in the dark which was cool because they got exposed to one of the most I I dare to say revolutionary role-playing systems of the past five years I'm not sure exactly when it Folks, out. it should be no surprise at this point if you've been listening, but we love Blaze in the Dark here on this Dungeon World podcast. Yeah, and the reason I would say revolutionary is just because um, it changes a lot of design instead of being a little bit of like a tweak on old games, which it's it's rare to find a game that rebuilds itself from the ground up and feels justified, whereas right. every it, design decision in Blades of the Dark feels like tailored to creating a certain type of experience and also mm-hmm. like tight. Yeah, absolutely. Blades in the Dark is great. And it, it seems like you had a great experience with Blades in the Dark. Let's hear about it. Yeah, so um, w- one of the things actually that struck me when I was explaining the system to these people for the first time that I hadn't really thought of at Bl- Blades in the Dark before is that the basic dice mechanic kind of feels like gambling, that you're like, you're you're creating a dice pool for yourself out of D6s and you're doing there's risk reward every time that you're saying, am I going to push myself? Am I not? Am I going to take a devil's bargain? Am I not? Um, and we got some good moments out of that uh, risk-reward paradigm in in that session. So basically, we had a, a crew of smugglers, and they were going to go out uh, on a rented train car out into the Deathlands to investigate a crashed train that had recently happened, and they were one of the first to know about it. And they their specific thing that they decided they were smuggling was uh, ghosts and spirits, and that everyone in the in the crew had the ability to take up to two spirits into their body um, and like house them without being possessed and use that as a way to like surreptitiously transport them. And that was uh, done by binding them to yourself with like a ritual piercing. So all of the gang members or the crew members could recognize each other 
that they had some part of their flesh pierced and the crystal would be glowing when there was a spirit in and pale when there wasn't. And so that, that flavored a lot of the fiction that we had. So they come to this uh, ravine and the whole, there's a big section of the track just blown out and they see the train down below that it's fallen into the, into the ravine. And so they start, um, you know, everyone's doing different things. Uh, some, some people rappelled down. One person stayed up there. And there ended up being, uh, like a newly formed vampire that was on the train that they were trying to get. And there was this dramatic moment where one character took, uh, three different spirits into themselves, including the vampire, the whisper character. They were like really pushing the limit of like what they could contain and they were suffering mental stress. But, um, at, uh, for the bulk of it, we had all of the characters down trying to deal with the crash train situation, except one, the, um, the leech, which is basically the role of a sort of mad scientist alchemist type character that you can play in Blades in the Dark. And that character was staying up on the train. And he was making sure that, that their own train didn't fall off the tracks. He was making sure their getaway was ready. And he was also dealing with the situation of another train that ended up coming behind them. Uh, and there was the risk that it might crash into them. And so I was trying to manage the spotlight to continually switch back uh, to that player. And but in fiction, he wasn't alone in the train. The other two members of their crew were in the train with him because in Blades in the Dark, it's assumed that there are at least a handful of other people in the crew aside from the actual uh, PCs. Uh, and that's both uh, an, an, a way for players to have easy access to a new character if their character dies and also a way for them to um, to delegate in fiction tasks to other characters that can go and like do errands for them and so this since this was a very small crew they had all the pcs so it was the four of them plus two more people and those were npcs that i had just spun up at the beginning of the session that were named talker and crowl and talker and crowl in the short span of you know just being created in this one day and just being there for a short you know two and a half hour session were really flavorful and they got to have good time in the spotlight with um, this leech character, um, being up in the train and showing off some of their own strengths and weaknesses. And each of them was just comprised out of character of just a couple details. Talker was this sort of like grizzled, um, salt and pepper, uh, salt and pepper stubbled man with a scar on his, on the right side of his head that made the hair not really grow back well there. And he was always the pragmatic, shifty eyed, um, mercenary who was on this crew after a long stint of being on several other crews. And Crowell, um, was a, a short, pudgy man who, um, always stayed pretty close to Talker who had his tongue cut out. And because of that, he would drool often and, and constantly be like wiping that away as like a fidget because it was hard to keep his saliva in his mouth without, without the, without the tongue to like sort of regulate that when he like made his, um, sounds that he would do instead of speaking. And, the two of them as talker as the sort of unfazed by everything and the crowl as sort of like easily frightened, uh, takes a lot of coaxing to get into action character were really funny to, to have and really flavorful to have in these tense scenarios with the leech trying to like coax them to go down there and help out the crew, trying to like prevent them from using, using items on themselves that they should use on other people and that sort of stuff. And it, I don't know, it created a lot of cinematic moments that I was looking for in the session. It's definitely a highlight for me. Very cool. I do enjoy the description of Crowell as a flavorful NPC, considering that one of his core characteristics is that he has no sense of taste due to yeah. the absence of a tongue. That's true. Yeah. I'm entertained by it anyway. I really yeah, like I the sound not. of those characters. Now, you you mentioned that one of the things that you really like about Blades in the Dark is that 
there's sort of a, an expectation that the crew of P of PCs will be filled out by a couple of NPCs. And that really brings us nicely to the conversation that I think we're going to have today in our adventure workshop. Because today we're going to be talking about some of the ways we can use NPCs in our games outside of, you know, outside of and including some of the obvious applications. So why don't we jump right into that conversation? Let's do it. So I think maybe the most obvious place where an NPC makes uh, makes their mark in a, in a game is as a villain. I can't think of a session that I've run that didn't have at least one villain in the mix. Someone who very obviously is there to be the bad guy and is presented very clearly from the start as being that. Whether it's a mustachioed, mustache-twirling type or some kind of evil empress slash countess... Or, you know, even on a more mundane level, your, your typical sheriff, by and large, my, my NPCs end up being villains more often than not. So what are some things that we can do with our NPCs to make them good or, at minimum, like, interesting villains? I think the number one in fiction thing that makes a character stand out as, um, as like, a, a, a fleshed out character that is memorable instead of being a sort of flat character that you're constantly forgetting the name of is humanization where that character is relatable somehow and not just relatable that you agree with them but relatable in the sense that they have uh depth and unfortunately depth is not that descriptive of a term right. but my go-to for this um especially in recent weeks has been game of thrones because game of thrones manages to bring to the table a massive cast of characters and yet whenever they flash back to someone when they're balancing the spotlight very artfully as they're trying to have a bunch of different story threads uh being addressed in any given episode even if i don't remember the name of a character which in my first couple you know days watching the show and watching the beginning of the season i might not remember the name of a given character but i remember what they want and i remember what their traits are like oh yeah. this is the guy who's constantly lying you know or this is the guy who um is is you know strung strung along by this person and is constantly trusting this person even though yeah. they shouldn't and that type of thing and if there's just a a villain who just wants to kill everybody or just and, and you're not sure exactly why or they have some abnormal if, i don't know they, they, they have a, well, yeah affectation like. or, or a predilection for certain methods and it's and and it, it it seems illogical you're like why would they just do this you know when they could you know easily be more happy if they did this yeah i really like that you bring up game of thrones especially in the context of what makes a villain great because I think that it is a prime example of creating a great villain. Every villainous character in Game of Thrones has so much inner life to them, so many underlying motivations. All of their decisions, they're not necessarily rational. There are plenty of characters in that show who make irrational decisions quite frequently, especially on the bad guy's side, quote-unquote. But they all make these decisions that are rooted in the inner life of the character. And I think that's where a lot of in a lot of the a lot of the time with villains in my case anyway i sort of lose sight of what makes them great is giving them that inner life that arc that growth that uh, that willingness to move beyond just that flat shaded version to something that is a, a great com combination of wants and desires and also you know mistakes along the way of achieving those so you in, know that that's uh... sort of my key way 
the key way that I'm thinking of villains is give them some some sort of arc, something that grows alongside the the players to make them believable, almost humanize in, them a little more. In Game of Thrones, what's Joffrey's mom's name again? Uh, that'd be Cersei. So Cersei, Joffrey, and the rest of the Lannisters in Game of Thrones, uh, that whole family is sort of portrayed, at least for the first season, as the villains. The Minor like, spoilers for the very first episode of Game of Thrones here. Maybe the second one as well, because sure, that I mean, is all as I'm much sa- as we can spoil by saying that they are villains. Yeah, all I'm saying is that the, the, the directors of the show clearly want you to be sort of rooting against these people at, at the outset of the show. But you come to understand them. The directors of the show allow you to get in their heads and understand them as why they're doing what they're doing because they always seem miserable right like they're they're being horrifically cruel to like various people around them in various ways that i won't go into but and they always don't they don't seem happy and which is kind of like the hallmark of a villain a lot of times that they don't have what they want and so they're they're constantly resorting to more and more desperate means and they're they're towing the line of whatever it is morality and you but you have to decide what that is and for the lannisters it seems to be that they want supremacy of their their name and their family yeah, they and they're very concerned in about their name really yeah and that's just and that's just, just sort of misapplied because i'm a lot of people especially in role-playing games the pcs have a strong sense of family right that like this this little group will often become their family and very rarely in fiction are all the pcs related to each other but um this this idea that the villain has one noble trait that is really misapplied and that they have sort of been through whatever experiences they've gone through pushed to seek out in negative ways and extreme ways that's the hallmark a lot of times of a good villain i I really like the the framing you have there of they are never happy because that is something that is so true and that i hadn't really thought of before like if a villain is happy it's because right then and right there they're winning and that moment if applied correctly can be really memorable and really Something that really sets aside a particular NPC in terms of their their villainousness. Yeah, that that comes together. And like Um, the things that make them happy, like you should point out, like the only times really that you see Cersei smile and where she's not just smiling as like a social tool to like, I don't know, like the smile isn't a lie when she's like genuinely smiling because something mm -hmm. has pleased her, are times when like people that should be close to her that she has every reason to just like support and get along with are like experiencing horrible suffering and she's like and that's pleasing her and you're seeing that she's being pushed in that space of like becoming a kind of a sadistic person and that's why she's a villain right and that's why we call her a villain but don't 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 get trapped in the in the in just the term of villain and be and let that be an excuse the villain is never a reason for something it's a name that we attach like after those things have been determined we don't say like oh this person's evil because they're the villain that's 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 a dangerous line to go down to if in in your in your characterizations totally so speaking of you know dangerous lines to cross let's jump into our next category of npc as i've identified them the side hero now there are a couple of different forms that this npc can take they are anywhere between uh, hapless comic relief to overpowered and incredibly badass DM level player character. Two uh, options and oh, that represent ends of a spectrum that I think has a wide range in the middle. But I want to call out a couple of ways in which I, I worry about side heroes as NPCs. And this is something that I think I have done and that almost every GM has done at some point. There's that classic uh, error of 
adding an NPC that's really there so that you can play with your players. Someone yeah. who's your representation of self in the world. The Gandalf character, I call it sometimes. Not because I don't like Gandalf, but if, if, if there was a if there was a um a group of people that were trying to play basically the Hobbit, right? And that yeah. you know, there's a bunch of PCs, one PC is playing as a collection of four dwarves, one PC is playing as, you know, uh Bilbo and etc. Yeah. Then the GM would be Gandalf. That they just like pop in every once in a while to mm-hmm. solve all the problems and get their kicks, and then they when it's narratively appropriate, like buzz off to go solve something elsewhere in the world. And sure. I've had, I've been in sessions where that's happening, where like the GM literally rolled up a character sheet for, for themselves and gave themselves like three extra levels the, above the, the average level of the party and would just at what they considered to be cinematically appropriate moments, like come in and just be, ha- have this huge build up to the reveal of just their character. And it se- felt very self-indulgent, you know? Yeah. And I think self-indulgent is exactly where things go wrong with that sort of character. There's that moment when you're talking to yourself because your DM PC is talking to your villain or side character or whatever it happens to be. And then the two the, the two people interact and then your character does something badass. It's just a spotlight hog. And I, I really want to call out the danger of that style of NPC where really what it is there to do is be in the middle of things with your players. It's a way to not be a fan of the characters that I really you know want to want to specifically make you know address critically there's a slightly more well-intentioned version of that that i think still is not an ideal best practice which is a a character that has plot armor that is always going to be there even if it doesn't make sense for them to be there um that doesn't really fight much but is just a GM controlled character that tags along with the party as like a mouthpiece for information where the GM is like afraid that like the parties will need to like know things about the world that they wouldn't otherwise be able to know. And sometimes this character is literally just a guide that is there and is just telling them things and not just for like a specific moment, but just throughout the whole campaign that is there to like give them hints and like the solutions to puzzles and things. And there's nothing stopping you from giving that information to characters just in so many other ways that a whole other character there that isn't being used as like the utility of another person that isn't being used as a human, but it's just a mouthpiece for information is I think an inelegant way to solve that problem. Totally. If you and want, I, you can inject information right into characters' minds. If you need to, you exactly, can just say, you know, this because you're the blank, you know, because you, you read a book about it beforehand. That's one of the ways that spout lore comes into play, especially as a way to address that exact issue. And I do think there's a difference between the, uh, the guide or the the you know extra warrior or the henchman or whatever it is uh, that the GM provides and then the hireling version of that because I think right. it, I think it, the main distinction there is that if players choose to get an NPC and and almost use them as equipment or as a stri- as a strategic element of their composition that's one place where you can start to become the guide because the players have explicitly said we would like this character to exist for this purpose. Yeah, and then there's a certain sense when that happens where it's kind of under their control that they de- they determine when this person continues with them and when they don't. They chose them in the first place. They potentially had other choices and they went with this specific person. They sought them out because they had a need that they recognized as characters that they wanted to fill. And even if you want, um, you could even have the players have... Uh, like narrative control of that where like when that character yeah. speaks there's a certain player that always like falls into that and and that sort of thing which can can be really fun there you go i, so, I like hirelings a lot I, hirelings they, are a they, great thing yeah 
And I think maybe that's the, the key here with something like a side hero. If you are putting it in there and then putting him front and center in the spotlight, that's maybe not the best way to approach it. But if the players are deliberately shining the spotlight onto someone that is not their own characters, then to me that that becomes a lot more uh, a, a lot more palatable. Now, sort of in the same vein, or actually, really, sort of as a midpoint between the side hero and the villain, we got the rival. I think rivals can be a ton of fun if they're handled correctly, and something that I really enjoy messing around with in my own games. Um, have you ever done a rival? Like a, an NPC as a rival to the players? Um, an NPC as a rival? I have done, um, especially in Blades in the Dark, um, where sometimes when the players, uh, all the play, all the players on their, on their little playbooks, there's a list of contacts they could potentially have. And at the outset of character creation, they have to, they have to choose one positive contact they have and one negative contact. And often those negative contacts end up being, uh, sort of rivals for like some of the characters that I've had. Um, oh. I've had, not not exactly in the line of what we're talking about, but I've had uh, PCs in the party being rivals of each other, um, especially in Invisible Sun, where when you choose your uh, bonds that you have with the other PCs, each bond has a different sort of light mechanic associated with it, and one of them is rival. And mm-hmm. when the when one when your rival succeeds on an action, you get a plus one to your next action because you're trying to up one up them basically. Which oh, is that's a fun little fun. mechanic. Yeah, yeah so they're like constantly watching the other PCs, and whenever they succeed, it's like, oh yeah, now it's time for me to do better. And it really pushes that like almost player rivalry too, which is fun. Totally. And and when when a rival NPC shows up, it's a it can be a fun way to up the stakes if they aren't directly opposed to the players, but they're competing for something with them, and especially if they're willing to compete on sort of an unethical or unsportsmanlike level, you can really up the the personal investment from the from the player's perspective. Which, you know, not the worst thing in the world, especially if things are starting to lose energy a little bit. Uh, one thing that I do think is worth avoiding, though, is the like dark, dark side of the players rivalry like scheme. If you've got five PCs and then you create five NPCs that are the rival party and each of those is like a dark version of the group of PCs, that yeah. can be kind of unexciting. I think really good rivals are super different in a meaningful way where you can see like oh this is what i this is what our party would be like if this this and this were wrong and bad um but in which the actual execution is very different yeah it shouldn't be like simplistic if you're gonna do that thing where there's like a a gender swapped version of the party or like the the shadow version of the party it should be for like one dungeon room it should just be like a one-off little thing and not like some reoccurring thing there's the the and it's harder to balance a whole group of rivals um but can be very well utilized i think the um there's an adventure called the lapis observatory i believe i have uh, or no the deep carbon observatory and deep carbon observatory is a famous adventure module i think from uh lamentations of the flame princess but contained in that there's a, a rival adventuring party that is like trying to achieve the same goal that the pcs are trying to achieve in that adventure uh called the crows and there, it's like one of the best, um, one of the best like enemy parties I've ever seen in cool. in uh, in any adventure module. Um, I think that one the one thing that can be interesting about Arrival though is that if they aren't really the villain, if like they're not necessarily doing anything like strictly immoral and they're not they're not 
evil per se but for one reason or another like the pcs hate them and like that can be interesting where they're not really justified to kill them so to speak but they just don't it's just a character that constantly gets on their nerves and to explore that where like this character is bad in the narrative and is clearly opposed to the pcs Mm -hmm. but they're not evil you know yeah there's one uh there's an example that i want to bring out as well uh another published dungeon out there the 2017 one-page dungeon contest winner, Temple of the Moon Priests, has a really good use of rival NPCs that I want to call out. Yeah, I, um, I've read that one. Yeah, I love it. It, it, it. For those of you who haven't read it, the basic premise of the Temple of the Moon Priests is that there is a jewel of peculiar power that lies buried deep within the lost Temple of the Moon Priests. And it's a very straightforward but puzzly dungeon where there are a lot of different rooms that interact with each other in interesting ways. And one of the interesting things about it is that as the PCs enter into this environment... They will interact with an encounter, depending on which directions they go and where they end up, different members of a rival adventuring party, uh, the Knucklebones. And that does two things. One, it it ups the stakes a little bit because there are other named characters that will be there to interfere. But then also, because they got there first, they've already gone into the dungeon and almost serve like hints for where things go wrong. And and there are various mechanics in the dungeon where if you interact with certain things, there will be significant consequences. And seeing those consequences visited on somebody else is a great way to communicate to the players that these are the risks you have to deal with. We'll definitely link this one in, dis- oh, in the description, given it, that it, it's free it, and yeah. it will, you know, it's one page. It, it's Do yourself free a favor and, and it's check superb. It out. Honestly, like I looked at this and stopped working on my own one page dungeon because I was so blown away by how good this was. And I just wanted to sit there and look at it. <laughs> it is hypnotic in its beauty. So we'll link to that for sure. Um, so that's sort of rivals. Let's chat about quest givers. Quest givers are weird. I don't really know how I feel about them. Because I feel like they're so they're they're kind of lazy sometimes. Like if I have a PC or sorry, if I have an NPC whose sole job it is to is to tell the PCs what we're doing today, then I'm not really listening to my players and you know leaving blanks and whatnot the way I should be. But also it can be a really good way to to streamline your prep if you can start in media res because the PCs will have agreed to do something that you've already set aside. True. I, I, I think quest givers are of the same sort of handbook that the tavern opening comes out of. That on its face, it's not necessarily bad, but it's assumed as the default and has this connotation of being very boring and so is often used in boring ways. And I think the, the couple questions to answer with the quest giver is... Why isn't this person doing this thing themselves? Um, what does it have to do with the PCs, you know, and, and to the degree that they would actually risk their lives for it? And how might this be presented uh, otherwise? Like, is this the most effective way this information could be com- conveyed to the characters? And if it isn't, what might be? Because if there's just a dude sitting in a booth in the tavern and he's like, you should totally go into the hyper dangerous dungeon of severed hands and, and get me my cat because it ran away, then, <laughs> you know, and I'll, g- I'll give you some pittance of, of pay for it. You know, or, or they don't even say. They'll, they're just like, I'll, I'll give you something. I'll give you a hint, you know, to some something that you want. When you You're come welcome back. to keep anything you find in the case yeah. of horrible dangers. <laughs> yeah. They're like, well, that's always the case. That's that. that. Yeah. 
Sure. One yeah. way one way to do that a little bit more gracefully might be to have the players overhear a quest giver giving a quest to somebody else or talking about it. You know, yeah, oh, it's, I, you're subverting I, the yeah, trope. Exactly. Yeah. And that way the players also feel like they're pulling one over on you, even though they really aren't. You know, if, if the players are out in the town and one of them's like, I'm going to listen in to what the people around me are saying and try to get hints. First off, great trigger for discern realities. And secondly, it's something where you can use NPCs in the environment that aren't even particularly fleshed out. They have maybe one physical characteristic and a, a mannerism. And then, you know, you, you can say, oh, I'm very sad because my cat went missing in the cave of dangerous hands. And then the PCs are like, oh, the cave of dangerous hands, a cat, you say, and then go from there. Um, I think that um, quest givers in that style can be used from time to time, but I think the default one that you should rest on should not be that. If you're gonna have a default, I think it should be, it should be the following: it should be let one of the PCs know, um, like like say like your character has come become aware of either through narration or in a love letter or something mm -hmm. that something they want is close by or something they care about is threatened, and then that PC will have to convince the other PCs to. Like help him get it. Ah, make um, your, what make you know, one of your PCs a quest giver rather than exactly be an NPC. Exactly. So say like you know you've been searching for the the sword of Lakmar. You've learned that the hilt of it is actually rumored to be nearby, and so that PC will be like, "Hey guys, you know, I've saved your butts in the past. Please come like help 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 me retrieve this." Um, and and they'll find out the reasons for it. That's a lot more elegant because you're being a fan of the characters that, and and also there's investment built in. There's no question of why are we here, what are we getting out of it, mm -hmm. because that's that's built in. Like they're they're tied into that quest, and it is their quest, not someone else's quest that they're just the means to an end. And it makes them really seem like the main characters. They're people pursuing their own goals, not just people, you know, trying to make ends meet. Because that's that's real life. Yeah, that, yeah. <laughs> quest, that's that's not why I play Dungeon World. Please, and quest thank givers you. are bosses. You know. Yeah, uh, that's a really good point. Um, to that point, though, about quest givers, I also want to call out another sort of tropey NPC, which is the NPC that exists exclusively for exposition. You know, there's nothing that I enjoy more in my free time than speculating wildly about the lore that I'm setting up, and then writing out all these detailed documents, and then getting ready to introduce an NPC that can just read out the paragraphs of text I've already written. And that's a habit that I've had to break because no one wants that. No one cares about the hours and hours that I've spent contemplating the lore because, frankly, the characters, or the players have better ideas for the lore than I do almost always. And my exposition NPC is just going to get met with eye rolls. So, yeah. you know, I, don't do it. Have your players do that. Have your players expose the world to each other. Also, especially when we're playing Dungeon World, I think the reason that you're going to find a player sitting in a Dungeon World table in the first place, or why they've agreed to, is because they want or at least willing to experience something different. If they want the traditional format, start in a tavern, have an old bearded man tell them that the realm is in danger, go out and attack it for some gold and just, and they're totally chill to do with that, they'd be playing like fifth edition or something. Like any of the, you know, televised, D, D and like streams D, D campaigns that are like licensed by wizards of the coast are always just following that format you know you guys are the sanctioned approved branded heroes of the realm and someone's going to summon you to you know blackstaff tower and tell you that the realm is in danger and you're of course you're going to do it right like there that's yeah. why we're all here sitting at this table if you're wanting something a little bit more organic you know kind of like 
the type of stories that we see in things like Game of Thrones, where the characters are doing things because they're personally invested, they're threatened, you know, why, why would one of Rob Stark's sons, like, put himself in danger and, like, overreach himself and do a whole military campaign? He's trying to rescue his sisters, right? From who, when? I'll let you find out, find out if you're watching the show, but mm-hmm. it's because he is invested, not because someone came and told him, it is time for you to go and slay the blah, 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 you know? Also, uh, if you're going to tweet at us about how we're getting Game of Thrones lore wrong, uh, you can. Just don't at our Twitter account. You should add our personal Twitter accounts, which are, of course, the Twitter accounts of David Benioff and whoever the other showrunner on uh, on Game of Thrones is. At them, not us. Yeah. Let them know that we're screwing up. Yeah, the, the, and then they can come and um, give us uh, bit parts in the show as, as, as a way for us to redeem ourselves. I could probably pull off like a schlubby librarian. I could even bring my own costume. Yeah, I could I could pull off um, a wizard, just a total cannon-breaking yeah. D&D-style wizard just slinging fireballs. Hello, yeah. I'm Gandalf Voidlight. I'm here to save the day. <laughs> <laughs> slays dragons and <laughs> becomes right. most hated character in yeah. the show so actually that here speaking of things that i that, that we like and don't like about game of thrones let's talk a little bit about fodder this is something that i think game of thrones did really well at the beginning of its run and has gotten way worse at over the course of it oh no like well sorry mild spoilers for my personal opinions about game of thrones this is just we're gonna mark this with spoilers like there's no way we can get around it even though we're being pretty good um, well, I haven't seen past uh, season three, so sure. be gentle. So, so fodder is, you know, there are two ways that fodder gets used. Uh, way number one is you you say two lines of dialogue with an NPC, and then that NPC dies to set up the fact that there's a threat. This is the red shirt approach, which we see a lot yeah. in like old Star Trek and modern Star really all Star Trek, where in order to set up how dangerous something is, an unnamed character who is clearly marked as... Uh, you know, someone who's going to go out and fight is killed. They're just there to to make things dangerous and add fictional stakes. And that's kind of boring. And then there's the other version of it where you've got a bunch of fodder enemies that you're just kind of idly hacking, slashing your way through in order to get to the real thing. And that can be fun and and really, you know, enjoyable at the table, especially if you've got players who are there for the, the power fantasy of being a, a violent and capable fighter. But... You, you should also try to give your fodder enemies life. Uh, there are ways you can do that, like having them give particular battle cries or giving them, you know, sort of one, one of them's got a spear and he, he's got a real spring in his step and whatnot. Little bits of flair are a good way to make your fodder a little bit uh, more palatable. I'm going to say palatable a lot since we're talking about flavorful NPCs. And if you have something that you might consider fodder, at least make it mutable. Like, don't make it like this guy will die no matter what. Like, yeah, th- nothing in your world should be immune to change from the PCs given the right circumstances. And nothing should be binary. It's not either this guy kills you or you kill it. Mm-hmm. Like, there should be some leverage there. I had a, there was a moment in the Blades in the Dark session that I was talking about at the outset of the show where w- the Lurk character, which is the sort of stealthy character, was sneaking into the or the wreck of the train car alone with night vision goggles and they came across a little boy who had a rebar from the from the train like falling across their legs like partially crushing their legs and the kid like was sort of crying out in pain and couldn't really see them and the character tried to assess the situation to see how he might get this bar off 
and failed the role. And I told him, like, it looks really bad. You're probably only going to be able to get this off with, like, the help of multiple other people. And then, and additionally, there's, there was sort of like a, uh, an angry, uh, sort of zombie creature that was coming towards him at that moment. And his choice at that moment, like, was, you know, I guess I can't save this kid, right? Because I, I would need help and it's going to be co- more complicated than I thought. But he made, he made a choice that I hadn't expected, um, but was perfect, uh, in terms of like revealing his character, which was he actually, cut the kid's throat and absorbed his soul and like carried it in his body so that he could like bring it back to whoever cared for it and like sell it to them. Wow. Which is showing this character being a little cold, but like that's what that crew did, right? Yeah. Is they trucked in souls, but he was pushing the line a little bit farther as this kid wasn't already dead, but that character had decided like mm, this kid's past saving. I'm just going to, you know, cut my losses here yeah. and like made that choice, which was this sort of like cinematic moment where he was revealing to the other players something about his character and none of the other characters were around to see that but us as players were getting to see something about his character and i had just put that kid there as like showing like a train crash let's see some victims and i just put that kid there and i wasn't expecting it to be this whole moral quandary but that's what it developed into because of player input you know yeah that is a pretty powerful a powerful moment from player input that exposes like here. Here's how you put an NPC into the world and g- give them some meaning. Is let the players find what's meaningful about them and actively engage with it. Um, to that point, I've got one last category of NPC that I've listed out. I mean, I don't know if you've got any more that we should talk about on top of these. Um, but this is something that I added as a late addition, and that's the lover. And Amen, of all the NPC types that we've talked about today, I find lovers hardest of all to play. In part because they can easily fit into a lot of these other categories. Uh, you know, th- there's a way to make a villain out of a lover or a lover out of a villain. The same with a side hero, although that is a little dicey to me. Uh, rivals, especially, it's really like fertile, uh, fertile ground. And you know, for some characters, you know, there are there are. I think that one of the barbarian Herculean appetites is pleasures of the flesh, right? Um, so, yeah. in, in a way, a lover could fit into the world of fodder, and of course, exposition. There's that classic Bond trope of the the Bond girl explaining something before being her life being tragically cut short. So, yeah, I, I don't know. Eamon, have you ever had a character uh, in one of your game, a PC in one of your games, uh, actively engage in any sort of romance with an NPC? Uh, yes, and um, it's it's definitely one of the most fraught categories because we have so like numerous examples of how it could go wrong, right? Mm-hmm. And um, at at the outset. Um, the, the biggest pitfall I think that you want to just step out of the door and instantly step to the left to avoid is, um, that it's a way of dehumanizing a character. They're there just as the lover, right? That this is a character that doesn't have any interest besides their uh, appeal or their romantic interest, or they're just in the story to show that this character has, you know, social prowess or something. Mm-hmm. Um, often they come from backstories, right? Like a character will say, like, they'll, they'll, they'll give that to you that they had a former lover. Um, I've had that before in a character, a character that had in a long running fifth edition campaign. Um, his whole motivation was he was a warlock and part of his contract was that, uh, his, his lover was, like captured in amber and was just being sort of held over his head as leverage for him to do what he wanted. And his whole goal was to like eventually save her and like basically pull an epic heist to like get her out. Cool. Um, and so that was interesting that 
um, in that instance, she didn't appear on screen hardly ever, but um, he would talk about her to the other PCs and she would be a reason why his character would or wouldn't do things, mm-hmm. right? Uh, if he was presented with certain opportunities, he might turn it down because he's like, no, there's there's someone else I care about more and their life is worth more than yours. Or, you know, that's the reason I can't go out with you or whatever to like other characters yeah, and that, that type of thing. That's a cool way to do characterization. I think this is something that the new God of War game does really well of having a character looming over the game but without without ever actually showing them on screen the ghost of a character exactly i i do think that god of war kind of doesn't exactly tackle its representation of women characters very well at all uh and part of the reason that i think it does a bad job of it is the fact that you know this whole game is about a mother and then the mother character in the game is just really not handled well but that the way that that the um the deceased mother um, looms over it is, I think, really successful, and it, for that specific reason, is that it, it it gives stakes for the the player character Kratos and the son character. Um, it, it gives them both stakes in the context of the world, um, and what they remember of someone else really echoes through that entire thing. Um, yeah, I think one way that I've always approached uh, approached romantic interests in my games is to set some sort of ground rules. Like, I, I'm a big fan of the safety mechanisms like lines and veils. And explicit descriptions of sexuality, I think, are a great place to have a veil where you sort of pull the curtain and let things happen off screen. Uh, yeah, rare, a- rare is the table where, like, that's the experience with people, that people are going for. And I, even more so in Dungeon Worlds. Yeah. Typically, like, people signal that that's what they want by choosing certain RPGs from the get-go that, like, are designed to tackle that type of content and that sort mm-hmm. of thing. Even though because of the nature of the human experience it ostensibly could be in any rpg but for sure. um that i i'd say especially if you're inexperienced so to speak with um ha- having these sort of themes in a role-playing game before even if you consider yourself really experienced in the realms of love in real life or whatever that's not those those skills don't transfer to rpgs necessarily um, um, a- i would say go slow like tell the pcs or tell the character the the players like hey, I'm thinking about having this element be introduced uh, and start out really simple. Be like, this character likes this other character and we're going to just watch that develop and that's it. And no no more complications than that and just see if that goes over well because then the stakes are low, at least at the get-go. And you're not throwing the characters into like some situation where they're going to feel uncomfortable or, you know. Yeah. Um, Just as a a concrete example, one of the PCs in my ongoing Blades in the Dark campaign... um, during the first mission, met a, met a character, and over the course of the downtime following that mission, she expressed interest in sort of reconnecting with that character in a romantic context. And what I ended up being able to really utilize there, from a you know, fr- from a GM perspective, was the uh, that relationship as a framing element for what people are doing when they're off screen, like starting a, a tense uh, encounter between the party and uh, something that they're that they're working against it with one of them coming and antagonizing the two of them while on a date is a good way to you know to make it clear that people's lives don't have clear compartmentalization that they're constantly in this world that ended up being a really fun way to apply the the connection that this character had experienced with this npc 
Yeah, there I could go into numerous examples. I don't want to just <laughs> let let this yeah. let this segment overtake us. For sure. Uh, in in conclusion of application, I think there are two sort of principles that if I was going to attack on the dungeon world principles um specifically to hone them in on characters, I would say these and feel free to edit or add to these Arthur. For sure. I would say principle 1 is decide what the characters want and how they're going to want how how they would try to get it if the PCs weren't there. So that's sort of a, a character focused idea of the living world, specifically the people, like what choices might they might make, make what uh, measures and extremes might they go to and then say, um, in what ways are the PCs able to alter that? So when the PCs come in, like how, what are their sort of handles to pull on and, and actually affect people? Um, because there should be some. And if you know what they are or what they might potentially be ahead of time, then you're at least better positioned to pivot to a new one yeah. rather than if you didn't have any. That's like a we really, said before of the that's person really that's there strong, just to die. You know, That's a really strong bit of prep that you can have when you're coming up with your NPCs. Um, and it makes them, it, it's a really useful tool for personifying them. You know, these are the ways in which they change in response to the world as the PCs in, engage with the world. Um, so, pivoting yeah. into meta talk I think as time. a way to sort yeah. of apply that. Let's talk out meta. Of character. So, yeah, let's talk meta. How do we how do we personify our NPCs? How do we make them real and memorable and human or otherwise, depending on our setting and our context? This is hard. This is something that's really hard to do. I don't know. I have some strategies that I've developed and that I'm working and practicing on. Eamon, I'm sure you do too. What what are we what do we do? How do we do it? The ways I don't know I would say that I'm like self-taught in this area, but that's not really true because I've been taught by all of the media that I've consumed, specifically in relation to role-playing games, especially from creators that have done this so well and that I've sort of tried to adapt and understand what is so good about their strategies. I like in Michael Prescott's uh, Dungeon Starters, his one-page um, and occasionally two-page dungeons that he puts out, um, he'll have characters in there, but he doesn't have the space to give you like the backstory of this character. It'll be like a few lines. And that usually includes what they're good at, why they're dangerous, why they're interesting, and also sometimes their weaknesses. You know, um, it might say like... Um, Actually, I'm gonna find an actual good good example, Arthur. Yeah, totally. You talk, yeah. So yeah, I so Eamon, I, you you claim that you are not formally trained in personifying NPCs and playing characters, um, and that th- that's actually something that I can speak to. I technically am sort of trained in playing characters in that in that regard because I've been taking improv classes this year. I don't know if I've mentioned that. I'm sure I have. Um, <laughs> And there, there, there are a handful of ways, at least in the school that I go to, that we are taught to embody characters as we play. And that's something that I'm still working on. Like I've alluded, I am definitely consider myself a novice in this. But there are four particular points of inspiration and points of, of nucleation, almost, for characters that I want to call out as ways to do personification in advance or to prepare them. Um, and they are, in no particular order... Emotion, desire, physicality, and status or status. Um, Now, emotion, I think, is pretty straightforward. We should think about what a core emotion in this character is right now and explore why they feel that way and how they express that to the world. There are hundreds of different ways to express that someone is angry. It could be expressed as a sort of inwardness or as outright violent rage, anywhere in between. Uh, it could be expressed as, you know, 
railing and ranting to other characters, or it could be expressed as sort of a quiet withdrawal. Um, and having an idea of how this character expresses a given emotion and what emotion is at the core of their being lets you get into that character pretty straight in a pretty straightforward way because we can draw on the ways in which we express that emotion and figure out ways that our approach contrasts with the character. Um, now, in the world of desire, we can think about what NPCs want. What do they really, what, what are they trying to achieve? What are they trying to acquire? Whatever it happens to be. Um, because once we know what they want, we can figure out how they feel about what it is they want and how they feel about people interfering with that and how they express emotion as relates to it. Are they wistful? Are they jealous? Anywhere, in the, a, anywhere uh, emotion can end up drawing into that. You know, we can connect with desire and vice versa. They're angry. Well, why are they angry? And then you can tie that to desire. Each of these uh, points of inspiration for personification, to me at least, should flow from one to the next. Um, there is also physicality. One way that we can make our NPCs more memorable is to talk not about what they're saying. And rather than inhabiting the character, we talk about how that character is embodied, how they exist in the world. Are they leaning on things? Are they walking with a stiffness or a regality to them? Do they point their nose in the air or do they, uh, do they bow their heads? Describing the ways in which they move and experience the space that the PCs are also occupying is a reasonable way to give them weight and, and, and memorability, too. You're much more likely to remember the person who is constantly touching a wall as though he's going to lose balance than it is to just say, oh, you know, he's over at the edge and uh, he says this, this, and this to you, and we're done. Um, now, finally, of, of, the, of the personification tools I want to bring up here, there's status. Status is not like, are they poisoned right now? Are they sleepy? It's how do they relate to other players, other characters in the world? Are they at a higher point or a lower point? Uh, one way to think about status is not, you know, is, are they the king? But are they deferential? Um, someone with higher status will be deferential to the other, even if they're or Well, sorry. Someone of lower status will be deferential to another, even if their titles might imply that they are reversed. A king might kowtow to an adventurer or a conqueror or something, even though the king is technically at a higher level. So that's sort of a, a quick run-through of ways in which I have explicitly been taught to personify characters. Uh, Eamon, what have you got? So I was thinking of some of my own formal training, I guess, um, which I, I almost didn't even think of in this realm because I was thinking too narrowly about RPGs, but I'm a theater minor. And so um, the, I want to draw a distinction here. There is so much to characterization and um, the, you'll never hit the bottom of it, I guess, because what you're grappling with is the way to describe humanity. And even if you're, if they're inhuman characters, if there's something that the characters have any ability to speak to, um, they have some sort of construct of wants and needs, which in our real life, their only thing to go off of, of what that might be like is, is the, the human experience, which is so broad that, uh, every, everyone's trying to do it right. And, um, you don't have to be on the level of characterization of like Oscar Wilde or Samuel Beckett or like famous playwrights in the context of an RPG. Because in an RPG, you don't have to have all the answers and you don't have to have them all um, present in the narrative. You're not having, you're not writing a master play here. You're writing an adventure. Um, or you're at least writing enough of an adventure 
um, for your PCs to get rolling. Um, and so the draw maps leave blanks character uh, draw, sorry, the draw maps leave blanks principle, I think applies to characters very strongly. And I found some hard, uh, concrete examples from Michael Prescott here that I really like. Um, there's an just enough here for you to get a sense of the character and then your own ideas to take over. And this is enough that for you to convey to a characters and then based on the reactions to this character tells you how you should continue to play them. And I have both a, um, a human and a non-human example. Here's the non-human example first. Well, actually, now that I think about it, both of these are fairly non-human. Um, in The Lenses of Heaven, which is an adventure location by Michael Prescott, which is sort of this uh, planar like, port city, and this is a certain location within that port city, there is uh, an area called the Kitchens, and, and in that there's a short little description of Qual. It says, Qual, the cook, is a massive Crayston, which is like a giant lobster person, with a shell of copper and mint green rust. He's a master of variety and delights at using unexpected ingredients. If he's on duty and he feels that he can overpower newcomers, they will wind up in a stew or a pie. Five Selk servants assist and defend him. The oven is home to 30 kitten-sized fire spirits that are loyal to Qual. And that's it. It doesn't say anything else about Qual and the whole adventure. But what you know about him is that he's a giant lobster creature who is a cook who is passionate about his work and commands the loyalty of the actual cook fire itself. Um... And he not 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 just as a master of variety, but like actually delights in that. That's a lot different than if you say this cook has been here for like 30 years and he's just dying to get into another job or something. This is a sort of connoisseur, which is enough that you can play him like that. Um, maybe he's even pretentious about cooking and that sort of thing, which is already enough for that character to be memorable. Yeah. I'll bet he's constantly um, uncomfortable because as a lobster, he's always outgrowing his current carapace. That's true as well, and also he's in a he's in a kitchen, and maybe he um he you know when char characters or or his bosses order seafood he maybe he has a sort of qualms about that being being uh, that sort of yeah. uh, creature himself. I'll bet he gets and... steamed up until he's red in the face, <laughs> or he certainly could um, if you're going for that tone, and and that would definitely be a funny moment for a lot of players. Um, the other one that I want to call out is. Um, from the Skyblind Spire, which is perhaps one of um, Michael Prescott's most famous uh, one-page adventures. There's a whole episode of um, Fear of the Black Dragon, um, which is an OSR podcast from the Gauntlet about this about this adventure. Um, and it's in a room where there's just a group of giants. Most RPGs would literally say there are a couple giants here. But that's, even in the small space of a one-page adventure, that's too little for Michael Prescott. He needs to give them life. And so here's what we learned about the giants. Four giants from Fire Vault seized this spire two years ago. Armed Farok is their leader, but Sosa is feared most for drinking and spitting molten lead. Afa and Isho, inseparable twins, feud incessantly. They are distressed and wary as the horde has begun to shrink. Worse, the blue tapestry over the north exit room 18 prevents them from finding their way out of the tower. And then it describes what treasure they have. So we're not just seeing giants, but we're seeing stranded and distressed giants who are growing restless. And each of them has a name and like one thing that you know about them. You know that Afa and Isho are twins and that they feud incessantly, but it says they're, in they're inseparable. So we know that they have this sort of bond. We know that there's the leader, but the leader is not the one who's the most feared. The most feared one is, you know, this sosa because of spitting molten lead so that that was like 
less than a paragraph of just all of their names and stuff about them, but already more interesting dynamics and a more sort of complex social relationship going on between these four giants than you would get in paragraph upon paragraph of a, of a lesser writer, which is all you need in an RPG. That's, that's enough that this is going to be a memorable encounter. Yeah, I really, just from that, the, the amount of flavor that he packs into such a simple description, fantastic. I really enjoy it too when people go out of their way to give little extra details just around the corner. That molten lead detail could have could never come up in play, but just knowing it as a GM, it totally changes the way I play the character. And, oh, absolutely. And that's such an important part of our prep that we have to make sure we do is to actually come up with these critical details that add you know a lot of extra dimensionality to these characters. And it tells us some things implicitly. Like, he doesn't say anywhere, giant. Giants in this world are immune to heat and fire, but they apparently are, right? Yeah. How else is this one drinking molten lead? And they also come from a place called Fire Vault, which is not detailed anywhere else. But if the characters wanted to go there, now I know some things about it. It's a society built by people who are immune to fire, right? That's really interesting. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, I think that is a reasonable place to, to cut off our meta talk, in part because we're already running a little on the long side, and we've got a lot left to cover, because it's time for Picture This. Picture This. So today we've got sort of a buffet of Picture This, inspired in no small part by the ongoing efforts to accumulate the Dungeon Rations content zine. That was a bad way for me to phrase that. Ongoing effort to accumulate content for the Dungeon Rations zine. Uh, shout out to Sentinel Greg on the Discord, whose NPC survey results are available for all to read. We'll link those in the description. And we'll also share a little bit about a really wonderful NPC. Uh, Eamon, you want to take uh, you want to take point on reading this, or shall I? I certainly I can. So, the first one that caught our eyes, and indeed the first one currently on the survey, was a submission from Logan Howard, dear friend of the show, mm. who submitted the Holy Empress Star Gatun, or Sar Gatun, pardon me. It says on a whim, the Holy Empress Sar Gatun mandates the menu for all households in her empire. Because her directives cannot possibly be realized, there is a great effort to make a public scene of consuming and requi the required food and simultaneously to hide the failure to, to, compl to comply from her. Spring is the perfect time for pickled apricots over cream fish. I decree that all families will enjoy this meal for a final gather every night while the hasier trees bloom. I love this vision of people having a picnic table out front with the explicit purpose of showing off the meal that they've been mandated. And then having a secret table inside where they actually do their real eating. Having that be an open <laughs> secret. Like, maybe it's even a competition to have the most vibrantly ornate tablecloth on your outdoor public table. And then inside, you're, you're making great efforts to hide it. It would be such a gesture of trust, too, to reveal that you have a secret dinner table indoors. When you pull it out from the wall where it's hidden, Murphy bed style. This also implicitly begs some questions about the world in the same way that the Michael Prescott example did. Like, if they're doing this sort of performance, like, who's watching? Is the is the Empress herself making rounds, or does she have a special division of the government that is there to, like, make sure everyone's eating the right food at the right time? Additionally, um, do they actually eat the outside food, or is it sort of, like, chewing, like, hmm, smiling, and then, like, spitting it out as they, like, rush inside to, like, nibble off of their, like... Yeah 
actual meal. Is it like a sacrifice in Greek, uh, in in at least modern portrayals of Greek religious tradition, where the uh, the best part of the meal is left for gods? Well, in this case, it's more we cook a whole meal just to show off the fact that we can cook what we've been mandated, and we we snack on it a little bit before eating the real food that we like. Yeah, you could spiral that into a lot of stuff. Maybe there are people that they're they're make they make their living off of uh, expertly cooking the required meals and then selling them to people yeah. for them to make a show of eating, or just peddling the the ingredients, the raw ingredients, if, especially if they're rare. She could simul- she could easily make or break a merchant who happens to have the right pickled herring tonight. True. All right, so that's the Emp- Holy Empress Sargutun. Uh, now from logan howard for sure now i believe you have two other uh food related uh, picture this elements to bring up sort of revisiting our food episode from a while ago some of these um these are both food related and they both are um succinct world details that are flavorful and they they push out a little bit from npcs to become sort of like uh, scene details or, or locations in, in and of themselves. In Invisible Sun, there's the concept of prosities, which are sort of cafes and the characters can go to in the surreal city of Saturine, in which is the, the default setting for the game. And these are places that serve, um, only drinks, if anything, and no food, but they stage, uh, readings and performances of poetry and short fiction and the poetry in interfaces with the magic of the place such that it sustains you as food would. So like there are some people who as a, a matter of taste and style don't actually eat any food, but just frequent these proceeds often enough to just get their sustenance. And so it's, it's through this, 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 po- the, the certain types or genres of poetry might have different flavors like love poetry might be like sweet like candy or very bitter if it's about like a breakup that sort of thing you can go on and on about that but just the idea of like uh art that can sustain um as a replacement for food is a very surreal idea that fits in the invisible sun setting additionally uh there is a sort of pseudo character kind of a scene detail uh, from one of my favorite uh, single-player RPG experiences, which is the Shadowrun Hong Kong game from Hairbrain Schemes, the third game in the licensed Shadowrun Revival series. And it's this noodle machine that you first see at a convention. And you, in fact, can, like, intercept some comms chatter from, like, the organizers of the convention and, like, you can like steal their emails and stuff if you hack them and they're all talking about like why is this noodle machine here no one bought it like why why is it here and they're just like let's leave it everyone's enjoying it and it seemingly like infinitely dispenses noodles that like no one's loading it up or anything and then later when you do a mission and go back to your hideout the noodle machine is like in your hideout (laughs) just all of a sudden and it's just still just dispensing noodles and like doesn't seem to need to be filled they're like really delicious and just you know but it's one of those just slightly concerning but apparently benevolent mysterious things that's just never answered in the game there's just this noodle machine that just infinitely dispenses the noodles Wonderful. that sort of haunts you that sounds delicious i'm so hungry <laughs> oh you'd think that in this weird and uh, and uncomfortable bar slash tavern where we currently are there would be something to eat but as far as i can tell they just straight up don't have a kitchen here i'm not even sure that well, they have a tap I'm, there is there is food, but I, I I've instructed you not to really indulge in any of it because we haven't lived in this city since birth, and so we're not immune to the toxins that they put in everything. Right, I wouldn't even call so, that food, honestly. 
you know you, you, yeah ugh. don't let them hear you say that oh god he's looking at me again we should probably leave we should probably leave and start to talk about our community at large because we've just finished another one of our monthly contests the character Indeed creation contest and I wanted. I think what we're going to do right now is take the opportunity to read out a couple of ones that we really like, and then because we haven't actually picked a winner yet, I think we'll announce the winner in our next episode. How does that sound, Damon? Sure thing. I'm going to need to sleep on this one because they were all really These good. These three honestly. are spectacular in particular. We, we got a lot of submissions. I'm lying. We got four, um, and we're going to read three of them because one person submitted two, and we don't want to read both of them because that wouldn't be a lot of extra spotlight. Um, and what we're going to do is we're going to just read these out. We're going to credit the, uh, provider of them and then we'll announce our favorite next week. But honestly, all of them were so, so good. It's going to be almost impossible to choose. I think Arthur, um, in addition to reading these out, we should make them potentially available for a view in the show notes of this episode. That sounds good Maybe to me. as a, because this is the type of thing that you kind of have to just like look over and just see, cause there's the skill of like filling out a playbook mm-hmm. in an interesting way you know what i'm saying i'll post them on the show website so that they're available to the community at large and let's start with dread pirate roberts from thomas so dread pirate roberts has the look joyous eyes fancy hair traveling clothes and fit body which does indeed hang together roberts is a bard uh, I, I think i I, I said at one point I anticipate there to be a lot of bards to come through, and certainly this is one of the ones that fits that nicely. Alignment slash drive is good. Perform your art to aid someone else. Race slash origin is human. We've got bonds. Buttercup is my true love, and I will rescue rescue her from evil Prince Humperdinck. Inigo Montoya was once my enemy, but is now my friend. I will help him avenge his father's death. Fezzik was once my enemy, but is now my friend. With his great strength, he will help me rescue Buttercup. And Prince Humperdinck is a bad man, and I must teach him a lesson. Great bonds, gear, dueling rapier, and pirate clothes. Um, Now, arcane art is interesting. This is sort of a fun twist, which I think really works. The bardic lore, uh, or is Legends of Heroes, sorry, excuse me. Arcane art uh, is performed by dueling, a duel so beautiful that it is almost a dance, alluding to that classic uh, initial encounter between Inigo Montoya and... um, and Dread Pirate Roberts, Wesley. Um, Bardic lore is Legends of Heroes Past. And then we have a bunch of different options from the uh, fr- from the advanced moves because this is a level 9 character. That's a very high level. I've never gotten to level 9 in one of these games. Um, amongst the moves that I see in particular, we've got Port in the Storm, Bamboozle, which is so fantastic and flavorful, Duelist's Parry, and then a little help from my friends, just all of which are totally applicable and reasonable here. Um, we also have Quest from the Paladin and Poison Master from the Thief, I think. Yes, from the Thief. These are all fantastic. It's so, it, it, is, it is a wonderful way to portray a beloved character, Dread Pirate Roberts from The Princess Bride. I have from Hoodlum on the Discord. Uh, Chewbacca, which was written up as a barbarian. Um, it was difficult to choose for Hoodlum. Um, he, his other submission was uh, Captain America uh, Captain America yeah. as a paladin. 
but I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a taste of this Chewbacca one. So of course the body is tall, slender, with long hair covering the whole body. Uh, clothes he put a bandolier. Uh, his alignment is neutral because he's going to honor a life debt and he smuggles to survive. Uh, and he made this character level four. Uh, Chewbacca's high stat is strength at an 18, and low stat uh, is both wisdom and dexterity are both at 10s, but he doesn't have anything below 10. Um, he has he has a single bond to Han Solo. It says Han Solo is always getting themselves into trouble. I must protect them from themselves. He chose unencumbered and unharmed, so long as you're below your load and neither wear armor nor carry a shield, take plus one armor, which I think fits for Chewie. Um, and his Herculean appetites, he put pure destruction and riches in property. Um, and then there are some notes here about which of the uh, advanced moves that he took. He took um, Appetite for Destruction, which is uh, basically allows you to take a move from the Fighter, Bard, or Thief class. Um, and he chose a little help from my friends, which is when you successfully aid someone, you take plus one forward as well. And he says that he took that mood from, move from the bard class because it reminds him of how Chewie is always helping friends. We never, we hardly ever see him working or fighting alone. Then he took the move smash, which uh, allows you to, um, on a 12 plus for hack and slash, choose something physical that your target has like a weapon, their position, or their limb, and they lose it, which he uses to represent the fact that Chewie has a penchant for ripping people's arms off. And he said that he, the Herculean appetites were difficult to choose, and he says that he landed on pure destruction because Chewie has his bowcaster, which is a very powerful weapon, and he has a tendency to tear arms off when he's mad, and that riches and property fit since Chewie's a smuggler attempting to earn money. Yeah, th- this is so correct in my understanding of Chewbacca as a character, Really enjoyed this fantastic work. Uh, now, the final one that we're going to read out today is Dr. Ian Malcolm from the Jurassic Park franchise <laughs> of novels and and uh, movies. Dr. Ian Malcolm is a wizard. He is neutral. Discover something about a magical mystery. Uh, he is, of course, a human. We have bonds with the other major characters, including one that I particularly like. John Hammond is keeping an important secret from me. And there's a lot of really good stuff in this, but one thing that I want to particularly bring up is uh, the author's, uh, incidentally, the author is My Own Little World, who is, of course, the winner of our previous competition. Uh, One thing that I really liked is that in the email, he describes how the spells that he's chosen here are not about um, being able to impact the world so much as they are representative of the way that Ian Malcolm carries himself. Detect magic is constantly he's constantly looking for the the magic behind it and the 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 sort of chaos and the the elements of the world at large. Um and charm person and invisibility are also both in there, and of course dispel magic as well. It's a really fun choice of spells to influence the character, and something that I, that did not occur to me when we put this contest together as being part of the uh character creation. And then one last detail, know it all is a really good choice of advanced move for an Ian Malcolm character. So kudos, my own little world, Thomas and hoodlum. These are really, really good character creations. And I cannot wait to get uh, into a, an all out brawl with Eamon, an all out tavern brawl. And as we decide <laughs> which of these will end up being the winner of this month's contest. Oh, you're on. Yeah. So stay tuned for that next week. And speaking of next week, that's all the time we have today. Thank you so much for listening. 
uh, if you enjoyed what you heard today and want us to keep on keeping on, definitely send us email saying we're doing great. Uh, the email is play to find out at protonmail.com. And of course, leave us a positive review on iTunes if you're interested. Uh, the more five-star reviews we get, the better we end up in the search rankings. And eventually, with any luck, we'll, uh, we'll start to become outright recommended to people. So leave a review on iTunes if you're so inclined. For better or for worse, that's the important place to discover podcasts. And for better or for worse, we should probably get out of here, Arthur. I, I think we should back through the portal before we get a knife in the back here. Oh, uh, if, we're, if we're worried about knives in the back, uh, we, that, that ship may already have sailed. Is, it, is this wound particularly bad? Or are we going to be in, is the, are we in dire straits? Well, as long as I can get you back to base uh, quick oh, enough. Oh, I'm feeling woozy. Be. That might just be the hunger, Let's though. Go. I think that'll be all for this week on Play to Find Out. <laughs>